0: written by Bertrand Russell, and published in 1912. This book looks at the different perspectives of philosophy. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. A huge thank you to all of the Spotify listeners who answered the Q&A. Every response is appreciated. If you appreciate the podcast... Please leave a review in your favorite podcast player of choice. It's extremely helpful in allowing me to reach more people who need a good night's rest. Even one sentence helps out. As always, a thank you to everyone who supports me on Patreon or Anchor with a financial monthly contribution. I'm ever so grateful for your contribution to the podcast. The podcast is completely free and it's thanks to your support that allows me to bring out more episodes for those who need them. If you would like to become a patron or sponsor, please visit com, where you can support the podcast. If you would like... You can also say hello to me at boytosleep.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The Problems of Philosophy by Bertrand Russell Preface In the following pages I have confined myself in the main to those problems of philosophy in regard to which I thought it possible to say something positive and constructive since merely negative criticism seemed out of place. For this reason... Theory of knowledge occupies a larger space than metaphysics in the present volume, and some topics much discussed by philosophers are treated very briefly, if at all. I have derived valuable assistance from unpublished writings of G. E. Moore and J. M. Keynes, from the former as regards the relations of sense data to physical objects, and from the latter, as regards probability and induction, I have also profited greatly by the criticisms and suggestions of Professor Gilbert Murray. Chapter 1. Appearance and Reality Is there any knowledge in the world which is so certain that no reasonable man can doubt it? This question, which at first sight might not seem difficult, is really one of the most difficult that can be asked. When we have realized the obstacles in the way of a straightforward and confident answer, we shall be well launched on the study of philosophy. For philosophy is merely the attempt to answer such ultimate questions, not carelessly and dogmatically, as we do in ordinary life and even in the sciences. But critically, after exploring all that makes such questions puzzling, and after realizing all the vagueness and confusion that underlie our ordinary ideas. In daily life, we assume as certain many things which, on a closer scrutiny, are found to be so full of apparent contradictions that only a great amount of thought enables us to know what it is that we really may believe. In the search for certainty, it is natural to begin with our present experiences, and in some sense, no doubt, knowledge is to be derived from them. But any statement as to what it is that our immediate experiences make us know is very likely to be wrong. It seems to me that I am now sitting in a chair at a table of certain shape on which I see sheets of paper with writing or print. By turning my head, I see out of the window buildings and clouds and the sun. I believe that the sun is about 93 million miles from the earth that it is a hot globe many times bigger than the Earth, that owing to the Earth's rotation, it rises every morning and will continue to do so for an indefinite time in the future. I believe that if any other normal person comes into my room, He will see the same chairs and tables and books and papers as I see, and that the table which I see is the same as the table which I feel pressing against my arm. All this seems to be so evident as to be hardly worth stating, except in answer to a man who doubts whether I know anything. Yet all this may be reasonably doubted, and all of it requires much careful discussion before we can be sure that we have stated it in a form that is wholly true. To make our difficulties plain, let us concentrate attention on the table. To the eye, it is oblong brown and shiny, to the touch, it is smooth and cool and hard, when I tap it, it gives out a wooden sound, anyone else who sees and feels and hears the table will agree with this description, so that I might seem as if no difficulty would arise. But as soon as we try to be more precise, our troubles begin. Although I believe that the table is really of the same colour all over, the parts that reflect the light look much brighter than the other parts, and some parts look white because of reflected light. I know that if I move the parts that reflect the light will be different, so that the apparent distribution of colors on the table will change. It follows that, if several people are looking at the table at the same moment, no two of them will see exactly the same distribution of colors, because no two can see it from exactly the same point of view. And any change in the point of view makes some change in the way the light is reflected. For most practical purposes, these differences are unimportant. But to the painter, they are all important. The painter has to unlearn the habit of thinking that things seem to have the color which common sense says they really have and to learn the habit of seeing things as they appear. Here we have already the beginning of one of the distinctions that cause most trouble in philosophy, the distinction between appearance and reality, between what things seem to be and what they are. The painter wants to know what things seem to be. The practical man and the philosopher want to know what they are. But the philosopher's wish to know this is stronger than the practical man's and is more troubled by knowledge as to the difficulties of answering the question. To return to the table, it is evident from what we have found that there is no colour which pre-eminently appears to be the colour of the table, or even of any one particular part of the table. It appears to be of different colours from different points of view. And there is no reason for regarding some of these as more really its colour than others. And we know that even from a given point of view, the colour will seem different from artificial light, or to a colour-blind man, or to a man wearing blue spectacles, while in the dark there will be no colour at all though to touch and hearing the table will be unchanged. This color is not something which is inherent in the table, but something depending upon the table and the spectator, and the way the light falls on the table. When, in ordinary life, we speak of the color of the table we only mean the sort of colour which it will seem to have to a normal spectator from an ordinary point of view under usual conditions of light. But the other colours which appear under the other conditions have just as good a right to be considered real and therefore to avoid favouritism We are compelled to deny that, in itself, the table has any one particular colour. The same thing applies to the texture. With the naked eye, one can see the grain, but otherwise, the table looks smooth and even. If we looked at it through a microscope we should see roughness and hills and valleys and all sorts of differences that are imperceptible to the naked eye. Which of these is the real table? We are naturally tempted to say that what we see through the microscope is more real, but that in turn would be changed by a still more powerful microscope. If then, we cannot trust what we see with the naked eye, why should we trust what we see through a microscope? Thus again, the confidence in our senses with which we began deserts us. The shape of the table is no better. We are all in the habit of judging as to the real shapes of things, And we do this so unreflectingly that we come to think we actually see the real shapes. But in fact, as we all have to learn, if we try to draw, a given thing looks different in shape from every different point of view. If our table is really rectangular, it will look from almost all points of view as if it had two acute angles and two obtuse angles. If opposite sides are parallel, they will look as if they converged to a point away from the spectator. If they are of equal length, they will look as if the nearer side were longer. All these things are not commonly noticed in looking at a table, Because experience has taught us to construct the real shape from the apparent shape. And the real shape is what interests us as practical men. But the real shape is not what we see. It is something inferred from what we see. And what we see is constantly changing in shape as we move about the room so that here again, the senses seem not to give us the truth about the table itself, but only about the appearance of the table. Similar difficulties arise when we consider the sense of touch. It is true that the table always gives us a sensation of hardness, and we feel that it resists pressure, But the sensation we obtain depends upon how hard we press the table and also upon what part of the body we press with. Thus the various sensations due to various pressures or various parts of the body cannot be supposed to reveal directly any definite property of the table but at most to be signs of some property, which perhaps causes all the sensations, but is not actually apparent in any of them. And the same applies, still more obviously, to the sounds, which can be elicited by wrapping the table. Thus, it becomes evident that the real table, if there is one, is not the same as what we immediately experience by sight or touch or hearing. The real table, if there is one, is not immediately known to us at all, but must be an inference from what is immediately known. Hence two very difficult questions at once arise, namely, is there a real table at all? If so, what sort of object can it be? It will help us in considering these questions to have a few simple terms of which the meaning is definite and clear. Let us give the name of sense data to things that are immediately known in sensation. Such things as colors, sounds, smells, hardnesses, Roughnesses, and so on. We shall give the name sensation to the experience of being immediately aware of these things. Thus, whenever we see a color, we have a sensation of the color, but the color itself is a sense datum, not a sensation. The color is that of which we are immediately aware, and the awareness itself is the sensation. It is plain that if we are to know anything about the table, it must be by means of the sense data, brown color, oblong shape, smoothness, etc., which we associate with the table. But for the reasons which we have given, we cannot say that the table is the sense data, or even that the sense data are directly properties of the table. Thus a problem arises as to the relation of the sense data to the real table. Supposing there is such a thing, the real table, if it exists, we will call a physical object. Thus we have to consider the relation of sense data to physical objects. The collection of all physical objects is called matter. Thus our two questions may be restated as follows. 1. Is there any such thing as matter? 2. If so, what is its nature? The philosopher who first brought prominently forward the reasons for regarding the immediate objects of our senses as not existing independently of us was Bishop Berkeley in 1685 to 1753. His three dialogues between Hylus and Philonus in opposition to skeptics and atheists undertake to prove that there is no such thing as matter at all, and that the world consists of nothing but minds and their ideas. Hylas has hitherto believed in matter, but he is no match for Philonus, who mercilessly drives him into contradictions and paradoxes, and makes his own denial of matter seem in the end as if it were almost common sense. The arguments employed are of very different value. Some are important and sound. Others are confused or quibbling. But Berkeley retains the merit of having shown that the existence of matter is capable of being denied without absurdity, and that if there are any things that exist independently of us, they cannot be immediate objects of our sensations. There are two different questions involved when we ask whether matter exists, and it is important to keep them clear. We commonly mean by matter something which is opposed to mind, something which we think of as occupying space and as radically incapable of any sort of thought or consciousness. It is chiefly in this sense that Berkeley denies matter. That is to say, he does not deny that the sense data which we commonly take as signs of the existence of the table, are really signs of the existence of something independent of us. But he does deny that this something is non-mental, that is, neither mind nor ideas entertained by some mind. He admits that there must be something which continues to exist when we go out of the room or shut our eyes, and that what we call seeing the table does really give us reason for believing in something which persists even when we are not seeing it. But he thinks that this something cannot be radically different in nature from what we see, and cannot be independent of seeing altogether though it must be independent of our seeing. He is thus led to regard the real table as an idea in the mind of God. Such an idea has the required permanence and independence of ourselves, without being, as matter would otherwise be, something quite unknowable, in the sense that we can only infer it and can never be directly or immediately aware of it. Other philosophers since Berkeley have also held that, although the table does not depend for its existence upon being seen by me, it does depend upon being seen, or otherwise apprehended in sensation, and by some mind not necessarily the mind of God but more often the whole collective mind of the universe. This they hold as Berkeley does, chiefly because they think there can be nothing real, or at any rate nothing known to be real except minds and their thoughts and feelings. We might state the argument by which they support their view in some such way as this, Whatever can be thought of is an idea in the mind of the person thinking of it. Therefore, nothing can be thought of except ideas in minds. Therefore, anything else is inconceivable, and what is inconceivable cannot exist. Such an argument, in my opinion, is fallacious, And of course those who advance it do not put it so shortly or so crudely. But whether valid or not, the argument has been very widely advanced in one form or another. And very many philosophers, perhaps a majority, have held that there is nothing real except minds and their ideas... Such philosophers are called idealists. When they come to explaining matter, they either say, like Berkeley, that matter is really nothing but a collection of ideas, or they say, like Leibniz, that what appears as matter is really a collection of more or less rudimentary minds. But these philosophers, though they deny matter as opposed to mind, nevertheless, in another sense, admit matter. It will be remembered that we asked two questions, namely, one, is there a table at all? And two, if so, what sort of object can it be? Now both Berkeley and Leibniz admit that there is a real table, but Berkeley says it is certain ideas in the mind of God, and Leibniz says it is a colony of souls. Thus both of them answer our first question in the affirmative, and only diverge from the views of ordinary mortals. In their answer to our second question in fact almost all philosophers seem to be agreed that there is a real table they almost all agree that however much our sense data colour, shape smoothness etc may depend upon us yet their occurrence is a sign of something existing independently of us Something differing, perhaps completely from our sense data and yet to be regarded as causing those sense data whenever we are in a suitable relation to the real table. Now obviously this point in which the philosophers are agreed the view that there is a real table whatever its nature may be is vitally important, and it will be well worthwhile to consider what reasons there are for accepting this view, before we go on to the further question as to the nature of the real table. Our next chapter, therefore, will be concerned with the reasons for supposing that there is a real table at all. Before we go farther, it will be well to consider for a moment what it is that we have discovered so far. It has appeared that if we take any common object of the sort that is supposed to be known by the senses, what the senses immediately tell us is not the truth about the object as it is apart from us. But only the truth about certain sense-data which, so far as we can see, depend upon the relations between us and the object. Thus, what we really see and feel is merely appearance, which we believe to be a sign of some reality behind. What if the reality is not what appears? Have we any means of knowing whether there is any reality at all? And if so, have we any means of finding out what it is like? Such questions are bewildering and it is difficult to know that even the strangest hypothesis may not be true. Thus our familiar table which has roused but the slightest thoughts in us hitherto, has become a problem full of surprising possibilities. The one thing that we know about is that it is not what it seems. Beyond this modest result so far, we have the most complete liberty of conjecture Leibniz tells us it is a community of souls. Berkeley tells us it is an idea in the mind of God. Sober science, scarcely less wonderful, tells us it is a vast collection of electric charges in violent motion. Among these surprising possibilities... Doubt suggests that perhaps there is no table at all. Philosophy, if it cannot answer so many questions as we could wish, has at least the power of asking questions, which increase the interest of the world, and show the strangeness and wonder lying just below the surface, even in the commonest things of daily life. Is there a table which has a certain intrinsic nature and continues to exist when I am not looking, or is the table merely a product of my imagination, a dream table in a very prolonged dream? This question is of greatest importance, for if we cannot be sure of the independent existence of objects, we cannot be sure of the independent existence of other people's bodies, and therefore still less of the other people's minds, since we have no grounds for believing in their minds except such as are derived from observing their bodies. Thus, if we cannot be sure of the independent existence of objects, we shall be left alone in a desert. It may be that the whole outer world is nothing but a dream, and that we alone exist. This is an uncomfortable possibility, But although it cannot be strictly proved to be false, there is not the slightest reason to suppose that it is true. In this chapter, we have to see why this is the case. Before we embark upon doubtful matters, let us try to find some more or less fixed point from which to start. Although we are doubting the physical existence of the table, we are not doubting the existence of the sense data which made us think there was a table. We are not doubting that while we look a certain color and shape appear to us and while we press, a certain sensation of hardness is experienced by us. All this which is psychological, we are not calling in question. In fact, whatever else may be doubtful, some at least of our immediate experiences seem absolutely certain. Descartes, the founder of modern philosophy, invented a method which may still be used with profit, the method of systematic doubt. He determined that he would believe nothing which he did not see quite clearly and distinctly to be true. Whatever he could bring himself to doubt, he would doubt, until he saw reason for not doubting it. By applying his method, he gradually became convinced that the only existence of which he could be quite certain was his own. He imagined a deceitful demon who presented unreal things to his senses in a perpetual phantasmagoria. It might be very improbable that such a demon existed but still it was possible and therefore doubt concerning things perceived by the senses was possible. And that concludes tonight's reading. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story about philosophy. I also hope that you're feeling a little drowsy and potentially ready for sleep. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. Until next time, good night.